The CFOs that get it, get it. The CFOs that don't, don't. Let's talk about the CFO, the Chief Financial Officer. There are two kinds of CFOs. One who's struggling to keep up, spreadsheets everywhere, manual processes. It takes weeks to close the books. The other kind is on top of their game. Automated reports, inventory, commerce, and HR flow into the financial model seamlessly. NetSuite is everything you need to grow all in one place. That's why NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system used by over 28,000 growing businesses. 93% of businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Head to netsuite.com slash c-suite for a special one-of-a-kind financing offer. That's netsuite.com slash c-suite. netsuite.com slash c-suite. This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Insights to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. Do you have any idea what social media and the internet is going to look like in just five short years from now? Well, our guest, Aaron Gargan King, has a pretty good idea about it. Aaron, welcome to the show. Hey, Joel. Thanks for having me. How's it well, going? That's a, that's a pretty bold statement to say that you have a sense about what something in this world, probably the thing that's turned our world most upside down of anything in the last 30 years, that you have an idea about what it's going to look like in five more years from now, which is a lifetime away because based on how things are going. So give us a sense. What do you think? What's going to happen? Sure. So if we think about social and mobile, iPhones just turned 12 years old. Facebook just turned 15. So if you average the two together, you're the numbers person, not me here, but you get get 13.5 years. So if you think of being 13.5 years old, that's like freshman in high school old. That's like awkward. Think, think about being a freshman, right? You're awkward. You're faking it till you make it. You're looking to others around you to see how to behave, which may or may not always be the smartest choice. So you're operating in a way that we were operating as freshmen in high school. So, so if you think about the moments when you're online, Joel, and you're writing, whether it's emails or social media posts, if you ever feel awkward or you feel like you don't know what you're doing, or you feel like kind of lost that's why. Because this way of being feels like it's been forever, but really it's only been freshman in high school amount of time. So if we fast forward five years, that would be about freshman, sophomore, and college old. So if we compare the internet and social media to freshman in high school to a, let's say, freshman or sophomore in college, think about how much you changed as a person in that amount of time. And the social media world is no different. I think we're going to see a lot of the types of interactions going from mass broadcasting one to many to more and more consolidated to one to one. I think we're going to see a lot more private groups, closed groups, as opposed to having this wild media broadcast dialogue to 2000 people that you've met once. Right. So I think we're going to see an evolution to a lot more happening on dark social, right? Everything that's happening 
with direct messenger and Facebook messenger and all this one-to-one interaction that's going on that none of us can see. What is dark social? What does that mean? Dark social is all the social that you can't publicly see. So when I message you on Instagram or Facebook, or I text message you all that one-to-one interaction, that's called dark social because big brands can't actually monitor what's being said about them, you know, behind the scenes. So all the one-to-one social media conversations that are happening, it's dark because not the whole world can see it, just the two of you. Gotcha. So they, so they were going to see a big shift to more of that and less town hall, if that makes sense. So you think that the internet, which is kind of an early teenager now, which I kind of get, is going to be something more like a wild and crazy college kid that's going to be drinking, uh, you know, in, in a stupor all the time. Is that yes. what you're thinking? I think it's going to get even wilder. Yes. My prediction is that we, we are still, <laughs> we are still, let's say another 10 years away from everyone figuring this out and starting to behave like normal adults, normal, real human beings. You know I mean? You know, I talk a lot about, you know, we don't type like we talk, right? Like you and I right now face to face on this Skype for the Zoom. I'm seeing you're nonverbal. You're like, you have the goatee with the hand. You're like kind of taking it in. We're having this whole exchange, but a lot of what is happening on digital is not, we don't, I can't see this nonverbal, you know, there's a delay, you know, there's physical distance, all these things come together and it makes us behave in ways online that we would never be bold, rude, or dumb enough to do in real life. And that's why you see people being a totally different version of themselves online as they are in the real world offline. So I think we're going to see that gap start to close as people start to figure out how to show up more authentically in the space. Yeah, the screen has emboldened people to do things that they would never do face to face. And, and all the bullying and, 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 and a lot of it's been really negative. I mean, it's allowed people to just do this really nasty stuff that uh, that's not working. Yeah. You think a lot of that's going to start to go away. Well, no, I mean, psychologists call what you're describing. There's a, a term for it. It's a phenomenon. It's called the online disinhibition effect. So online disinhibition effect, I call it the ode for short ode mode. And the online disinhibition effect says that the online space scientifically lowers our inhibitions, right? So it has the same effect on our brains as a couple of cocktails. It makes us act in ways we normally wouldn't behave. Right. And, you know, I study this and even I, like I wrote a message on social media yesterday and I was in like a weird mood and I wrote it and I, I literally, I deleted it a couple hours later. Cause I'm like, what am I doing? That's just not like, what is my goal with this? You know what I'm saying? Like, and I study it and I'm aware of it and even I'm susceptible to it. I mean, you've probably deleted a post or wish you could claw back an email before, right? In your past, I'm sure. Yeah, for sure. For sure. You know, we all have. And, and so it's not going to go away. I just think we're going to build up a tolerance to it and become better at understanding how to, to deal in this new environment, you know, cause it's like, we want to show up authentically, but not too authentically where we're oversharing. And then we also don't want to be like these voyeurs that are so cautious that, you know, we only show this perfect polished, you know, BS version of ourselves. So I think that balance will start to yeah. strike, but well, so there's, there's a, from it, so. there's a couple things going on here. One yeah. is that there is more authenticity and authenticity works people really do want to know who you are and they want to know about you. And that's why podcasts work. And that's why some of these other things work. But you know, one of the other things that you're talking about makes me think that we have a generational problem, you know, with the internet is that my children, for example, have never known a world without the internet. Mm -hmm. I, I grew up half my life without the internet and the other half. Now there's internet. For me, the internet is kind of evolved in my life for my kids. It's always been there. So I think that what you're explaining 
my experience is going to be different than younger people's experience because they're already there, aren't they? I'm, this is already normal for them. So for half the population, isn't the internet already kind of normal for them? So it's interesting that you pose that. So I was 15 when I first heard of the Google in high school in uh, Mr. Evans history class. He's like, there's this thing you go on and you type in google.com. I never forget. And I went on and I was like, Oh my God, this is amazing. So I'm literally half my life, no digital. And then the other half completely comfortable. My sister, however, is 11 years younger than me. Same parents, just, you know, a little treat there later in life. And I just hosted her bachelorette party. She's 25 in Nashville last weekend with 10 girls, which was a blast. But what I noticed, which was so interesting is that in just a 10 year difference, how much it was, the photo shoots were longer. The poses were longer. The videos were more, the uploads were more. It was almost like they were experiencing the bachelorette party through the lens of their phone versus you know, my generation, I'm a really old millennial where we're still kind of experiencing the moment and then we're tacking it on kind of after. So to your point, it is a lot more integrated as digital natives into the way that they operate. And to be honest with you, I don't know that that's a great thing. I mean, I don't know how that's going to shake out. I mean, because on one hand, you, you know, if you think about all the great innovations throughout time, you know, whether it was the locomotive. You know, I saw an article, um, Tamsin Webster, I don't know if you follow her on social media, but she posts incredible articles. She has like the best Reddit feed ever or something. I don't know. She has incredible RSS feed stuff that she finds. And one of the articles was talking about how when the locomotive first came out, um, women weren't allowed to ride on it because they were afraid that their uteruses were going to fly out at high speeds, right? <laughs> and then, you know... And then there was another article that, that, you know, when radio came out, you know, everyone was afraid that there was going to be brainwashing and then, you know, cell phones. And so there's all these in, throughout history, all these instances of every technological advance, everyone says it's the end of the world and everyone freaks out. And so it's kind of comforting in a way because perhaps some of the doom and gloom with where's the world coming to is just an age old problem, an age old issue, or maybe it's something different this time. I don't know that I can't predict. Yeah. You know, it's a funny thing. I always kind of wonder, like, my kids are not that great at using the telephone. It's <laughs> like they're just not that great at it. Like, they'll put it down, they'll walk around. Uh, you know, it's like concentrate. I, I try to get them to concentrate. You know, I can't talk to them. But, you know, it just it bothers me. And I think the world is worse off. But maybe the world's not worse off. Maybe my world is worse off. But maybe the world is not worse off. So in a certain way, uh, we have to really think about this. So Let's talk a little bit more about social media because you're, you're an expert in social media and you do uh, social media events and planning for large companies and you help them to deploy these campaigns. Give us some inside track on where social media is going. What are some of the great tricks that you've seen companies use in a social media environment? What's really working out there? So some of the brands that I work with, I work you know, in the healthcare space. I work with Hitachi and Siemens, you know, in the finance space. I've done a lot of work with Visa on a global level. I've worked with, you know, for retail, I worked with Target and on and on, ABC, Disney for Entertainment, all these different brands. And no matter what industry they're in, whether it's something as serious, you know, my husband works in venture capital. So I've worked with a lot of these finance guys, you know, PE guys on their strategy around acquisition and digital and betting all these startups and apps and fintech. So whether, whatever it is, no matter what industry, I see the same exact thread that kind of weaves through all of them, right? And that's that because social media tends to make us focus inward, it tends to exacerbate 
the Bragasaurus side of brands and of businesses. So we revert to sort of this advertising mentality of let us tell you about us and shout about our accomplishments and award-winning and we're the best. And that type of messaging, no matter what industry you're in, we're seeing incredibly unsuccessful engagement rates and conversion rates. And so a big shift that we've learned and I hate saying that I'm a social media expert because the social media changes so fast every single day that I spend two hours a day just trying to keep up and it's my full-time job. So the only thing that makes me an expert is I've just tested hundreds of campaigns over the last, I mean, I started in 2004, the same year LinkedIn and Facebook came out working for an early days match.com software for the conference industry. So I've been in social media since the beginning and LinkedIn came in and knocked us out, but I've been working in social media since it started. So I've just seen all these different things. And, and one thing that I've learned over the last, particularly five, six years is that Whenever someone is using social and digital and they're not working backwards from a truly audience-centric perspective, social campaigns and social messaging can be a huge waste of time and energy and money. So, for example, you know, I was working with um, Hitachi Healthcare with their sales organization. And a lot of their sales reps were reaching out one-to-one to try and obviously get time with hospital administrators to sell these multi-million dollar pieces of equipment, you know, scanners, MRI, CT, that kind of stuff. And what they found was that, you know, in the old days, if you sent out, you know, 50 messages saying, Hey, here's my name. Here's who I work for. Can I get time in your calendar? It was like, you know, 3% of people would say, sure. Right. Well, now what they were finding is that it was like way less than 1% of people were even opening them, were even giving them a shot. And so what they found was that that same strategy of, hey, here's my business, here's who I am, let me educate you, that used to work even a couple of years ago, people are just tuning it out. They just don't, it's, we're not in this like lean back culture where it's like, tell me, we're in a lean forward and digital environment, search, click, navigate where the buyer is driving. So what they started to do was flip the focus of their language. And they began to lead with very specific, very personal content pieces about each of these prospects, researching them, you know, thinking through some insights just for them. And what that means is that their activity went down. So they're only sending out maybe a third of the outbound that they used to. What they saw was that only that third of outbound was getting them twice, sometimes three, four times the return, the response, because it was super personal. So I think what social media has done is whether it's customizing your drink at Starbucks, whether it's picking the kind of driver that you want, taking you somewhere, picking out the house you want to stay in. I mean, I mean we're so used to hyper customization that, that I think that that's trickled down into an expectation, whether you're on the B2B or the B2C side, that personalization is the standard. It's not something that's extra. Like the Ritz Carlton used to say, now it's just par for the course. Do you know what I'm saying? You know, what's, what's interesting about this, it's very parallel to what you opened with, what you talked about the dark messaging and all this other stuff that, you know, the internet and, and social media and computers allow us to send out thousands of messages very, very fast, but those aren't working. The volume part is not working. What's working is the, the darker stuff that is not being seen by the whole world. So being more personal, you know, that's all what's working better. Right. Yeah. So dark social sounds like a bad thing, but it's actually a good thing. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I mean, when you explain it like that, I mean, I, I thought that the dark thing was like that dark web where it's dark like web. that secret, you know, where they're stealing passwords. But I get what you're saying. It's silk red. The concept of where the advertisers can't really see what's going on. That's not totally true because Facebook still knows and LinkedIn yeah. still knows. 
because they're still reading the messages. And they're listening to they everything. They are listening to everything. In <laughs> fact, uh, I've got Alexa over there and her blue light just turned on. She's listening to everything too. Crazy. Um, but, you know, everybody's listening and, and they're paying attention and they'll find ways to advertise and get in front of us. And yeah. if we move to a different part of the platform, they'll find ways to, to you know, put them to insert themselves. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. I, I got uh, 15 messages from one person who's based in New York. And this guy sent me 15 outbound, you know, LinkedIn, different messages. And I didn't answer one. And so finally I had to, I looked him up, I found his number and I called him because <laughs> I was like, dude, help me understand 15 unanswered messages. And he goes, Oh, sorry. I set up this automated bot that sends out these, you know, copy and paste, you know, messages, I'll turn it off. And I'm like, you know, we talk about like AI, you know, and this, this concept that some salespeople are still playing the numbers game. You know, I say that if you're still playing the numbers game, your days are, are numbered. I mean, I grew up in the Glengarry Glen Ross, always be closing. You know, I, I read all the Jeffrey Gittimer, you know, that was my sales training back in the day. I was a hundred percent commission sales rep. So I get it. I'm not knocking the hustle. I called everyone in the whole Baltimore city yellow pages. I get it. But the same token, you know, that type of just keep hammering, keep hammering. If you're a salesperson, you know, AI is coming. And if AI can do four hour brain surgery in two minutes, and you know, if AI can beat humans at Texas Hold'em and drive cars, and you have Facebook created two robots called Bob and Alice that within days started talking to each other in a language that the programmers didn't even understand. I mean, it's nuts. And so I'm pretty sure that they can learn how to copy and paste. So if you are, <laughs> if you are a salesperson or a marketer and you are relying on automation in the wrong way, like playing the numbers game and just having that, that thing in Salesforce that says that your team sent out a hundred thousand messages to the CFO can check that activity box. I just don't know how much longer that's going to be sustainable or acceptable at the C level. You know what I mean? Well, so what that means is there's, there needs to be some retraining at the senior level. Uh, that's number one. But uh, the question that really comes to mind is how do organizations incorporate uh, machine learning, AI, and some of these other technologies? Because we understand that it's out there. We understand that technology people are doing this, but how do we make it happen at the level that most of us are at where we're not technology people. We're actually uh, raising capital, selling things, buying things, making decisions, leading and running companies. How do we incorporate these tools if we're not technology people? Well, it depends on what level you are, right? So my husband, for example, he's in your space. He works in the venture capital space. He's a private investor. He's invested in FinTech and all these software as a service, everything. And how he uses AI is he has created a, a basic algorithm that, you know, it scrapes data across the social web and it allows him to just get a clearer picture of either who are the founders that he's vetting if they're trying to raise money from him or what do these investors care about if he's trying to raise money himself. So I think that there's so much data out there that the first step is figuring out how to use technologies that are out there, whether it's, you know, a software platform, which there's a million of them, or if you want to build your own algorithm, just something basic that can scrape the web for what you're looking for, because the automation is so powerful to uncover insights, but then you have to take those insights in my opinion, leave AI behind and then be a human being, you know, bring that value, that humanization, which is really your only edge in this world technology. And that's really the only thing that differentiates you and elevates you up beyond the robots is your ability to create a, a personal human connection. And that's why you were asking earlier, you know, about 
you know, you're like, going to influence later for NSA. And even though we're all so connected on social media and we're touching base all the time as we're traveling, nothing can beat that face-to-face human personal connection. And I don't think any amount of technology is ever going to take that away. I mean, I could be wrong, but you know, what, do you, what do you think? 15 years ago, there was a company that was a startup. Maybe it was 20 years ago. It was a startup company and they were going to try to eliminate the concept of conferences. They were going to have these virtual conferences and, and it totally didn't work because people really do crave uh, being around other people. They crave having a drink. They crave sharing ideas. Mm. Uh, so I get that there are tools that are uh, that scrape data. There are tools that help us to analyze data. Ultimately, we need to incorporate these ourselves. And I'll tell you personally, I think one of the great trends for the next decade coming up, and we're starting to identify trends and things that are critical. One of the things that I would say is that people need to collaborate more, not less. Now, the world is more complicated. So maybe you specialize in gathering this kind of information and I'll specialize in something else. But we need to share what we gather. We need to collaborate on what we gather because it's too complicated for any single person to do this stuff all by themselves. So we have to use the tools to enrich our lives, but we still need to put the human part. That's what I'm hearing you say. I I agree. I mean, open source culture is the future for sure. And to your point, I did a little experiment actually uh, two years ago, the consumer electronics show. I don't know if you know CES in Vegas, the big technology show. Okay. For years and years. Okay. So you, okay. So you're going to get this. So the company that I started working for in 2004, which was an early days, like LinkedIn for trade shows, I started going to CES my very first year out of college. And I went every single year for 10 years in all different capacities. So it was two years years ago. And I'm like, you know, it's after the holidays, you're ready to detox. You don't want to go party in Vegas. You just had, you know, two weeks off basically, you know, and it, everyone gets sick and it's just like everyone's shaking hands and everyone's gross and it's so crowded and crazy. And so I'm like, you know what, this year I'm just going to follow along. I'm going to watch the live streams. I'm going to read all the social media feeds. I'm going to create my list of all my influencers. I'm going to attend CES in my pajamas and see the difference between in-person and online. And what I found, I chronicled the whole thing on this, these blog posts on LinkedIn. And honestly, Joel, exactly what you said. What I found was, yes, technically I was updated on all of the trends and the rollouts and the product launches and who had the hot booth and the technologies, but the experience was so hollow. It wasn't even close. You couldn't even compare, like you said, all the different things that are happening when you're there in person. And so it's almost a prediction that we're both making, which is that the more connected we become online, the more technology evolves, the more AI and machine learning and deep learning and computer vision, all these things begin to, to kind of become more mainstream. More, more than likely, as tribal hunter-gatherer pack animals, we're going to gravitate towards these live events, I think, more and more, which is good news for us as speakers, right? Well, it's good for speakers, but we need more because there's a vacuum that's forming because all this technology is doing a lot of the sub work for us. Mm-hmm. And so we really need to fill in the gaps. It's not only that the experience, but I'll bet you that uh, the year that you didn't go, you don't remember anything about what happened. It's, just, it's not even yeah. a memory for you because it didn't create a memory. Now you might've learned some things and you might've made some lists, but you didn't have a memory of an experience. And at the end of the day, human beings are collections of experiences. I mean, that's really what we are. And, and that's a really relevant takeaway from this. You know, I mean, it's really important. I mean, there's a lot of inside track there. And we always talk about the inside track and how our listeners can profit from the inside and the inside insights that we bring to them. That's an important insight is that the more work a computer does, 
the more experience that the human beings need to have between each other to fill the gaps in for what the computers are doing without us. Right. Right. Thinking of it as an and and not an or, but there's also like, I mean, I don't know if you're a matrix fan, you've ever seen the matrix, but (laughs) all I know is I've read a lot from Elon Musk from Tesla and a lot of other very brilliant futurists and visionaries that also have major warnings against some of the components of AI and some of the different controversies. I mean, it's going to be very interesting to see how it plays out. One of the beautiful things about social media and the internet is that as things roll out and as they happen, there is this immediate microphone and a spotlight that amplifies everything and leaves it all open to immediate feedback from all over the world instantaneously. And that's unprecedented. And like we said, this is only freshman in high school old. So can you even imagine how that's going to evolve and going to shape our culture and shape our businesses? And I mean, even it's already starting now with looking at the gig economy, the people that are in this gig economy, I mean, they don't have W-2s and they don't go to the office. And I forget what the stat is, but it's, it's a large majority of millennials and younger, that that's just, why would you ever go into an office? Why would you, you know, and, and thank goodness for video conferencing like this, you know, actually I did a podcast the other day and it wasn't video and it was funny. It kind of like your kids, I was having a really hard time concentrating and focusing on what was even happening. Cause I'm like, I haven't been on an old school conference call in like <laughs> a long time. You, you can't see the person like you and I are having a real exchange here. So it's going to be interesting. I agree. Well, you know, I think that, uh, you know, if the kids are used to FaceTime and these kind of things, they're used to having more information than just comes across on a telephone. And that's their experience. Their expectation is that they kind of read the body language. It's not just what they hear, but they're kind of involved more senses into this whole process. And if you've always had that and all of a sudden now you got to go to a single sense, just go to a telephone where you can only hear, uh, that's a different experience. Now, a hundred years ago, that was a huge step forward. Right. And now that you've got all this other stuff going on, it's hard to go backwards. And so it's, it's very interesting uh, to consider that contrast. It really, it's a cool thing to think about once in a while. I, I don't want to go backwards. I like where we are, but it's cool to contemplate every so often. Mm-hmm. Agreed. You know, it's funny earlier you mentioned, is this just their new normal? Like, will it just, you know, h- how will it play out? This is all they've ever, ever known, you know? And uh, my brother just had a baby and um, like a week ago, Finn Thomas, cute little thing. And I've only met him on FaceTime, you know, but you know, cause they're on, they're in Boston. I'm on the West coast in California. And um, I'm FaceTime with like my nephew and my niece who are, you know, two and four, and they've never known a world where you can't in the palm of your hand, see auntie E in California. And so, you know, I think that that when you look at like evolution of the internet, there's different phases, right? You had email, then you have social. And I think that the next phase as we're seeing now is video, which is kind of bringing us back to the face-to-face experience, whether it's going live or having these video conference calls or, you know, it's getting us away from just that static, sterile, emotionless typing environment where so much can be misconstrued and misunderstood without all of the nonverbal cues. And um, so I think hopefully that video conferencing and FaceTime and Zoom and all this kind of it's kind of re reinvigorating the face-to-face human contact that we may have lost for a couple of years as we got stuck in the email chain land of business, which was a, a, a sad time, a very dark time, I believe in business communication history. Hey, so let's go back to the, you talked about how brands are not just pushing and being braggadocious. They really have to engage. I think that one of the worst things about Facebook is, is the braggadocious nature that it brings out of people. You know, just look at me. 
I just had a sandwich. Look at me. I'm on an airplane. Look at me. I'm in a fancy hotel room. You know, one of the things I remind people is that it might not even be their room. Maybe they just snuck into a room because the maid was cleaning it and they just popped in and took a picture. I mean, so you don't know what's true. And that's just the worst thing. So how are brands, what's the takeaway? What are they doing differently? What are things that, that our listeners, what's the inside track that they can take away? Mm-hmm. And what is it you know and what you're advising these large brands to do? Mm-hmm. Well, the way I first start with brands, I typically will tell them that, Look, we are 34 times more persuasive in person, face-to-face than we are behind screens. There was a study that came out last year, the Journal of Experimental Psychology. They found that it took 200 digital asks to equal the same number of yes as just six in-person requests. So the way we are operating behind screens and in person are very different, very different. But same token, you know, dialogue begins on digital. So we have to figure out how to close that gap between online us and offline us a lot faster. So one of the ways you can do that is to keep in mind that, you know, when we're face-to-face in person, we only talk about ourselves about 40% of the time. About, you know, like kind of go back and forth, hit the tennis ball back and forth, conversation. When we're online, that number doubles to 80%. So 80% of the time talking about ourselves, but we all know that persuasion is personal, right? And we've all read Cialdini and influence and, you know, it's all about making it about the other person. If you've been in any kind of sales role or any business role ever, right? So that's kind of the block that a lot of brands are facing is they want to shout about them and their diehards will love them. Their brand loyalists, their advocates will love it. But if they want to get out beyond that existing sphere of influence, whether you're a brand or an individual that wants to get out beyond just your mom, your besties, and your, you know, a hundred people in your neighborhood that know you, if you want to get out beyond that, you have to figure out a way to be more persuasive and to appeal to them. And one way to do that is to focus more of your language, more of your content on your audience. So for example, let's say you're a brand. So let's say you're doing social media for Bullseye Capital. You can't necessarily always show everything that your clients are doing and experiencing all the time because you're not in their pocket with them, right? So of course, you're going to show, here's what's happening at Bullseye Capital. Here's the award we just won. You know, here's our new employee. Here's Joel at an incredible event, being a great thought leader. Of course, you're going to show you because that's... That's what, that's what you have access to show. Just like in the real world, like you, Joel shows up, he's got the goatee, he's got the nice thing. Joel is showing up, right? So that, that's fine. Show about you. But the key is, is that to flip the language and the captions and the stories and the content that accompanies that image to being about them. Because in real life, Joel would spend 60% of his time making the conversation. Okay. So. Okay. I, I get why on social, we do 80% about ourselves because we don't know what else to talk about except for ourselves. Right. There's no other person to share the discussion with. Right. Whereas in person, you're back and forth and you're kind of batting it around. Right. So how does a company or a person make it about another person in the digital environment? That's, I guess, that's yeah. the most important thing you can share. So, so let's say that you were telling a story about an incredible client win that you had at Bullseye. So one very simple change that I teach to brands that will make your engagement double, triple, completely change everything. It all comes down to one word. So instead of you saying, I was at Bullseye Capital and I got this client and here we were and you're telling your story, right? You just flip the word I to you 
and you make sure that they can see themselves in the story that you're sharing. So you say, imagine that you walk in to an office and you've been working on a client for weeks and you know, when you're working on that client, da, 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 da. and then imagine that suddenly you experience a win and then you tell the story. Then you say, that's what happened to us. And now they've seen themselves in the story. You've gotten their attention mm. by using the word you. Now they care because they were on that, like you said, we're collectors of experiences. They've now experienced your post with you. You've brought them in to the experience, just like you do in real life when you're having a real exchange. But online, because of the ode mode swoops in, we tend to forget there's a human being on the other side, we tend to be very insular and inward focused by flipping the language to you. Now you're outward, you're bringing them in. So you're being personal, right? Another thing you can do is instead of just saying like, here we are at an event being awesome and you're not here, right? <laughs> instead, <laughs> can, you, can, you, can you make it useful for your audience? Can you share with them something that's happening specifically at that event that was a great nugget that you got or a great takeaway? So many times as speakers even, we're like, here we are at the event. Thanks for having us. Well, was there something that was interesting that might help someone get value from that post? Was there a moment or an insight or, or something that, that you can share that, that helped you that might help them? So it's kind of just taking the extra steps to show about you, but type about them. Use your words to indicate your focus is on your audience. And by it's at first, it feels a little bit awkward to kind of flip around. It's challenging, but not impossible. So like my challenge for me is when I send out my emails, to my list every week, I try to keep my eyes to a minimum. Like I try to send out an entire email without saying I, we, or our, and I, it's, it's possible to do it. Sometimes grammatically you have to have like one or two, but it's just being aware that if we can talk about ourselves a little less, you'll get yes a lot more. So that's kind of what I teach the brand. You know, some, sometimes, sometimes the most important things are so simple, you know, common sense isn't common practice and, and just exactly what you're saying is so important that you have to reframe the story in a way. Imagine you're with me experiencing it too. And, and that I'm sitting here thinking to myself, cause I make these videos. I'm going to, I'm going to just apply if I can, I'm going to try and do that, that this, this has affected me too. So this is a really cool thing. And I appreciate you sharing that. Oh, good. Well, definitely do. And look at your analytics after and send me a screenshot when you see the difference. Cause that, that's, that's the exciting part for me. That's my why is when I actually see people send like, yeah, I you this, know what? I, uh, and my opens doubled and my engagement doubled. And I'm like, yes, that, that's what I want. <laughs> so I'm going to, I'm going to give that a try. Well, listen, Aaron, you have just been awesome. Thank you for sharing. You, you know, so much stuff and uh, I really appreciate you sharing with our audience. I mean, that's the inside track. That's how they're going to profit from the inside. And and I appreciate you contributing to that. So thank you very much for being with us. We're going to put your contact information in the show notes and we'll make it possible for people to reach out to you if they need any help. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Joe. You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. How about a shout out and a giant thanks to my podcast producer, David Wolf, and his team at Podcast and Radio Networks. Profit from the inside simply wouldn't be what it is without David and his team. For more information or to learn how you can launch and produce your own podcast, reach out to podcastandradio.com. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.